um, I want to emphasize that we're together as the body of Christ. And the scripture says that we're to minister one to another. And that's what this is. It's not a format. It's a receiving from the Lord and sharing. And we'll always have that time, even if there's not a teaching. That's fine. God can do that too. But if you have something to share, I want to really encourage you to feel free to stand up and share it. The Lord knows how to put together what is beneficial to his people. And what he said was, we minister one to another. And if you're sitting there going, well, I don't know if my thing really stacks up enough to really share with everybody. You talk to the Lord about that. You know, I'm going to talk some about it today. But everybody here has a ministry one to another. There are not clergy and laity in the scriptures. Those words don't exist. Everyone has ministry in the body of Christ. So I want to just encourage you that if you have something to share. Jane had told me that story before, and I was just incredibly enamored by when she was walking around that room and panicked. And how am I ever going to do this? And she audibly heard the voice of the Lord say, let it go. I can just tell you this, if I audibly heard the voice of the Lord say anything, I would be knocked out for a day or two, just kind of, oh my goodness. But it was what she needed at the time, and she needed something that strong. And often we're in situations where there is no possible way for us to walk through the situation unless the Lord sustains us in a very special way. Now, it turns out that all of life is that way, that today is that way, that living tomorrow is really that way. But we're acutely aware when we come up on circumstances that we go, this is outside of what I can do. I don't have the resources to even make a decent attempt at this. And we have that in life in many times. As I look out amongst the people here I see multiple examples of how that has happened in lives. Even this morning, as we have shared, that that is happening in lives and situations are very tough. But the thing that the Lord does is he reminds us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I tended to go, oh yeah, I know that scripture verse. And the, what he banged on my head is, you know that scripture verse in your head, but you certainly don't believe it in your heart. Because if you had a tape recording of my prayers, my prayers head in the other direction. Like, God, I'm afraid you are leaving me and forsaking me. Because look what's crumbling around me and I don't think I can handle it. But the Lord never leaves nor forsakes. He never leaves nor forsakes. And he wants us to know that. So I'm going to share some on that today. The Lord kind of stirred me in a couple of directions. I was praying about what to share about today. And I'm going to start with the story of Gideon in Judges 6. And one of the reasons for this is we have got things that are on top of us that are in our personal sphere, that is our family, our interactions, our friends, things that we know about. And then we have a sphere that's kind of like governments and authorities and the world situation. I'm going to separate it just into two. Kind of have our personal thing and then there's kind of the world situation and where everything is going. And if you sit down, Teresa, and you say, this afternoon I really want to grade where the world is on their own and how they're going to be doing in the upcoming days, 
you're going to come close to an F or an F plus in terms of your grade. It is extremely discouraging the direction of the world and the direction that the enemy has put into people's minds that they call progress and moving forward, things that are deceptive that will not lead to what they think they will lead to, but will lead to destruction. And we have lots of stories in the Bible about people that have been in situations like that. The Lord doesn't just give us one story. There are many stories, but I want to pick up on the story of Gideon because the story of Gideon had a big picture of what was going on in his personal life that was ridiculously hard and also in the big order of things what was going on in his nation that was ridiculously hard. And so I th many of you know this story in detail. But Israel, the Bible said in Judges 1, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in mountains and caves. So where Israel was living, instead of being in their normal place, because Midianites always were coming in, they made their homes in caves in a defensive position. But the Israelites would go out and plant their crops. They would do all the things that they normally did. And the Midianites would stay away until the crops yielded. And once the crops yielded, the Midianites and the Amalekites, and the Bible says the men from the east, would come in and that their camels were uncountable how many of them came in. And they literally were like locusts and ate up every single thing that the crops yielded and all the yield of the vine and the wheat and everything was completely taken. And Israel was in a terrible, terrible situation. And so they cried out to the Lord. And when they cried out to the Lord, they, the Lord sent them a prophet. It doesn't say who the prophet was, but it does say what the prophet said. And James, the prophet says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. So the prophet said, I want you to recognize that God has been with you. He rescued you from bondage in Egypt. He brought you to a place and then he did the fighting, driving out the enemy in front of you. And then he gave you this great land. And what he said was to follow after him. But what did you do? You did not obey. And you know, in Deuteronomy, when it lists, when God lists how he wants to bless his people, um, sometimes, I believe it's Deuteronomy 18, let me just double check. Um, it is not Deuteronomy 18. It may be Deuteronomy 28. Yes, Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord lays out how he wants 
to bless his people. And God's intent from the beginning was to be a source of blessing. He meant that the relationship between God and his people would be a relationship of rejoicing. And Kathy said her group is studying the feasts when he outlines the feasts in Deuteronomy. He says in every single feast, it'll be a time that we come together to rejoice together. And bring everybody, by the way, Bring everybody in your family, everybody who's walking the street and the sojourner who's spending the night at your house. Bring everybody in because in the feast we're going to have a time of rejoicing together. And the Lord meant for that to be the way things were. And in Deuteronomy 28 he says, listen, if you will obey my voice, I'm going to bless you in big ways. And I'm not going to go through all the blessings, but they're great blessings. You will be blessed when you go out. You will be blessed when you go in. Everything you put your hand to shall prosper. Think about how many things you put your hand to this week and how they prospered or didn't prosper. But for the Lord to say everything you put your hand to will prosper. Your enemies will come at you one way and be scattered seven ways. You will be the head, not the tail. Have you ever felt like you were the tail? You will be on top, not on bottom. And I will be your Lord. And I will bless the fruit of your crops. And I will bless your cattle. Now, we're not so much into cattle blessing these days, but that was a big deal. He was going to bless everything that generated for us. He would bless it. And he said, if you will follow what I told you to do, all of this I will freely give you and we will rejoice together. Now, it'd be kind of nice if Deuteronomy 28, hope, stopped after those verses. But he went on in Deuteronomy 28 and he says, starting in verse 16, what would happen if you didn't follow the Lord? So there's kind of the blessing verses that... Um, you know, kind of go through verse 14 and then starting in verse 16. Unfortunately, there are about twice as many cursing verses. But he says, cursed will you be in the city. Cursed will you be in the field. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading trough. Cursed will be the fruit of your body, of your land and the increase of your cattle. Cursed you shall be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Every single thing the Lord talked about blessing, he said, if you take the other path, it will be cursed. Now, the children of Israel were kind of interesting, but not that different from me. I could be a children of Israel right easily. I am ashamed to say. Because they certainly wanted to receive the blessing of the Lord, but they also didn't want to obey the Lord's voice unless they agreed with it. I'm going to say that again. They were people who were glad to receive the Lord and his blessing, but they didn't want to obey unless they personally agreed with it. Which is to say to the Lord, I will hear you. And if you agree with me, we are together. If you disagree with me, I maintain veto privilege. And I'm going to do it my way. But Lord... I want the blessing to continue. Now, do you hear me? So the way the children of Israel worked their relationship was, 
We do enjoy that blessing. We will thank you for the blessing. But Lord, we're going to head our own way, which God called stiff-necked, by the way. Stiff-necked. So, um, Candy, you have a particularly good understanding of that at the moment. But he called them stiff-necked because they insisted on going their own way and then asking God to bless it. And we mentioned last time, you know, in Isaiah 4, where seven women would grab hold of one man saying, we will eat our own bread, make our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. And that's what the children of Israel did. They wanted to do their own thing, but they wanted to be called by the name of the Most High, and they wanted to be blessed by the Most High. Now, I, I can't tell you how important this is. Many, many Christians operate exactly this way. I believe in God. I want to go to heaven. I know he is the source of blessing, that he works things out when they can't be done. I know he is all-powerful, and I acknowledge that. And I certainly want him to bless my plans. And that's their approach to the Lord. And oh, by the way, my plans do happen to violate his moral laws, but I still want his blessing. Oh, wait, my plans are entirely self-centered, but I still want his blessing. No, I'm not really thinking about the good of others, but I still want his blessing. So all the time, the Lord is sending in a prophet, and the prophet almost always says the identical words. God has been faithful. He said that if you followed him, he would bless you. He said if you did not follow him, he would curse you. You chose not to follow him. You are experiencing the curse. You don't like the curse. The solution is to follow him like he told you in the beginning. And if you'll look what every prophet says, it is exactly that in some form. God told you in advance, this is not a mystery. It's not, oh God, where are you? It's God being faithful to what he said. And he said, I will bless you. But I, I am telling you that you need to follow me and obey what I tell you to do. And if you think that there is some sort of hybrid where I can be on the throne and you can be on the throne at the same time, you are going to experience frustration like you have never known, and that is not obeying me. And it makes no sense to that person that you can lose your life in Christ and find life. It makes no sense because it's spiritually discerned. And once you know the Father, you realize that we can lose our life and we do find life because He is life. Jesus said, I am life. And the Father is willing to open up Himself to us as life, as joy, as peace. If we will follow His commandments, we can't just run around and say, I want those blessings, but I want to live it my way. But don't forget the blessings, God. But we do that all the time. So this prophet did. He said the same thing. This is what God told you to do. You didn't do it. God said people would conquer you. You didn't do it. People conquered you. It's not a revelation. I'm just bringing this back to your mind. And so the prophet came, and this is very interesting, because the scripture doesn't say anything about how the people responded to the prophet. The prophet came and told them it doesn't say anything. Obviously, they didn't make much of a change. 
But the prophet was clear. I want you to understand God has not been two-faced because they were praying to him saying, where are you, God? You have forsaken us. And God had not forsaken them. He was trying to lead them in the right way. They bucked and went the wrong way and he told them what would happen. So then the question is, now we've read the story, but Israel's in a terrible situation and they're vastly outnumbered by these people, needless to say. And so the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth that Ophrah, Ophrah, O-P-H-R-A-H, Ophrah. I have no idea where Ophrah is, but the terebinth is a tree that grows in Israel and the angel was sitting under that tree. And it belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, and his son was Gideon. And Gideon was inside of a wine press, beating out wheat inside of a wine press so he couldn't be seen by the Midianites. And I want you to catch this. He wasn't making wine inside the wine press. He was beating out wheat inside the wine press. So he was doing something that was just to protect him from being caught and everything he had being taken. And so the Lord came to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, um, mighty man of valor. So if you read that verse right off, hope you might go, well, Gideon, six foot five, strapping soldier, well known in the community, really important guy, somebody an angel will use that has got respect and authority written all over them, and God's going to move in a powerful way through him. And the answer to that is no, 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 and no. Gideon was in one of the minor tribes, Manasseh. Some people even say it was the least tribe. A little argument there with Benjamin, but a lower tribe for sure. Not the upper guys. And then within Manasseh, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that his clan within Manasseh was at the bottom. Manasseh was at the bottom. The clan was at the bottom of Manasseh. And Gideon was the least born in his family. So God, as he is wont to do, went to the person who had no natural ability so he could show his glory. And he went to Gideon. And Gideon knew that. But what was the first thing the Lord said? The Lord is with you. Now, the older that we get in the Lord, James, those are the words we have to hear. And to tell you the truth, it doesn't really matter after that. It's that Teresa... The Lord is with you. Now, after that, it's details. Teresa, the Lord is with you. And that's what the first thing he said, and he called him a mighty man. But certainly not a mighty man by natural means. Not a mighty man at all by natural means. And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds our fathers have done, that have recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land of Midian? That's not necessarily the best thing to say back, but that's what he said. And then the angel said, uh, then the angel says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So he completely dodged the question and said, I want you to go and save your nation. 
do I not send you? And there are four places here where the Lord is absolutely, where the scripture is absolutely clear. It was the power of the Lord in Midian. And he said, the first thing I'm just going to tell you is I'm sending you. I want you to save your nation and I am sending with you. I'm with you and I'm sending you. And he said, Gideon said, kind of like maybe Fran, you or I would have said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I save Israel? In our lives, we have that sentence with different subjects and objects, but the same message. Please, Lord, the United States is in such a mess. The world order is so materialistic. People are so self-centered and the direction of culture is so far gone, how can I save my nation, community, or this world? And we have it in our lives. We have it as we go to our personal lives. I've tried to work with this person for 20 years. Everything I try to do to help them, they resent. Every time I offer to give them aid, they don't like the fact that I have aid to give them. I have stubborn places, Lord, that don't seem to crack. I have things within relationships that don't really seem to change, and I've been praying a long time about them. And I have difficulties that are coming on to me I don't know exactly how I'm going to handle. And by the way, I may need a hip replacement. We throw that in. Do you know what I mean? Throw that in to make sure the Lord is listening to it. But what are we saying? How can I save Israel? That's what we're saying. Now, it is so ingrained in us from the enemy to separate us from the Father that we instantly turn to our strength first and then to God to augment our strength. We instantly think that way. Well, God expects me to do this, and then if it's too much for me, I get to ask for three strength tokens to somehow see it through. My patience with this particular individual can last seven more days, so God's going to have to loan me patience for the next six years. Because I've only got seven days of patience. This person has lied to me, and now they're coming to me, and I think they're lying to me again. My inclination is just to be away from them and let them go suffer from what they've done. But I feel the stroke of God inside of me saying, love them like you love yourself. And I'm going to need supernatural intervention to do that because I can't do that more than a half an hour, James. And then it's going to run out. Our natural inclination is to view every situation from our natural strength. Now, I'm not saying everybody does this all the time. Don't get me wrong. I just want to say how big an emphasis the enemy has pushed on us this way. How big an emphasis. And this is one of the reasons there's so many stories in the Old Testament to encourage us. Because we get into situations where our natural strength is unquestionably insufficient for the task that's in front of us and the task cannot be avoided. Our natural strength is insufficient for the task in front of us, and the task cannot be avoided. And this happened over and over in the Old Testament. It's happening to Gideon right here. What are you talking about? I mean, 
if I could put this kind of in maybe modern language, are you out of your mind, God? And he goes on to say, I'm just in the weakest clan from Manasseh. I'm the junior guy in my house. The way national things get changed is prominent leaders step onto the scene and do big things with the support of a lot of people that they have organized. And that's the way things move forward. And just to remind you, God, armies are for real. The Midianites have got something in excess of 135,000 people in their army. And by the way, innumerable camels. And we need something in a major way to fight a real battle with a real enemy. Now, coming down to the least on the totem pole and giving them some sort of false hope that they can make a meaningful difference in what goes on, are you sure you know what you're doing on this God? That was my modern rendition of six words in the Bible. But y'all know what I'm talking about. All those things sound perfectly rational. Now, God is not irrational. He just transcends rational. It isn't that God's irrational. He's just above rational. He's in a whole new place. And when God is looking, he sees all that he is and that he'll bring it to bear on the situation. And you know it has to be frustrating to him that people look at him as just, can I get some help from him and how will this possibly work? Maybe I'll work with him, maybe not. When he wants to come in, be joined to us and bring all his power and might to make things work. It's got to be frustrating to God. I don't know if God gets frustrated. I think he does. But I have frustrated him. I know that. I frustrated Helen, so I'm sure I've frustrated God. But I know that, these, these, that God's looking at this going, listen, the first thing I told you is, I'm here, God. That's one of the things I love about Jane's story. An audible voice. And he didn't go through two paragraphs. He said, let it go. You hear? That's what she needed to hear. Now, I'm really into the audible voice thing. I've never heard God speak audibly to me, but I would love it. I think I would love it, Jane. I might fall flat on my face in fear. But... I love that. I know that John Upchurch was sharing before he died that the Lord appeared to him in his room at the foot of his bed and it was like a blue light and just said to him that he wanted John to know that he loved him. And he audibly heard it. And that was probably, I don't know, eight months before John died, something like that. I love that. But God knows who knows he, he God knows who needs to hear an audible voice and who doesn't. And I certainly don't. I mean, the Lord's given us enough in the scripture to know him and to see these things. I'm not turning it off, though, Lord. If you want an audible voice, I'll take 10. OK, I'll go with that just fine. But God knows how to customize what we need. And Gideon said this. How can I save Israel? Look at my natural strength. It's terrible. And then, what did God say? Now, without reading the scripture, what do you think God said? What did he open with? The Lord is with you. And when he complained about his natural strength, what did God say? But I will be with you. And that is the answer that God's there. That's why Jesus said when he left, the last words were, and lo, I will be with you always. Those are the encouraging words, not Jesus, will you explain to me your plan? 
And also, Jesus, I would appreciate a backup plan and an explanation of that because we know seven out of ten times the original plan doesn't work at all, and so we need a backup plan as well. So, Lord, if you'll hand me both of those, that kind of planning, Lord, will give me comfort. Now, I want to really lay this very thick. Jesus is always talking about following him, and he never says, follow him to where? And if you follow the Lord, you are going to take curves in the road that you didn't know the road had curves. And you're going to be taking curves in the road. We don't know where we're going. And I assure you, the disciples did not know where they were going when they followed the Lord. And the Lord chastised them when they said, let me go back and get my things in order. Then I'll be ready. Then things will be in place and then, Lord, we can move to you as the next chapter in my life. That's not the way it works with Jesus. It's, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my King. I am your servant. You are my Lord. You are my King. I am your servant. What would you have? That's the way that it works. The beautiful mystery is once you give yourself over like that, all of a sudden we find life. Well, how does that work? I can't explain to you how it works. I just know that God is the how that makes it work. And in the end, we're all going to say, we, we fiddled with a few things on the edges, but God was doing all the big stuff. We fiddled on the edges. A lot of what we do is say, yes, Lord, <laughs> you know, and welcome him in. But he's the one that's the power. And the scripture is very clear that it comes flat out and says that power belongs to God. That power belongs to God. So the Lord says, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. And fortunately, fortunately, Gideon didn't bolt. But he had a couple of, are you really going to be with me moments? And y'all all know what's coming up. But the first thing that Gideon did is he said to the angel, if it's really true and you're going to do all this, hang around here under the tree. I'm going to go cook some unleavened bread and, uh, and, and prepare a young goat. And I've not prepared a young goat, but I'm thinking that preparing a young goat is at least hours. And so he said, stay here under the tree where I cook the unleavened bread and prepare the young goat. If it's really you, stay here until I feed you. And so the angel said, fine. And so he stayed there and he went and he got the unleavened bread and goat. And the angel said, okay, um, he said, put, it, put this on this rock over here and I want you to pour broth over it. So you had the old rock sitting right over here, put the unleavened bread and you put the, the new goat down there and poured broth over it. And I was kind of thinking when I first read the story, James, that the angel would go over and eat with him and they would share a meal. That kind of looked like fellowship and we're getting together. You know, that has kind of some good kind of feels to it. But, and, and they could have done that, but they didn't do that. <laughs> what the angel did, the angel reached over with his staff and it was the old fire from heaven trick because it says that fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the unleavened bread and the goat. If you were Gideon, would that make an impression on you? Yes, absolutely. That's the kind of thing that you can't walk away from later and say, did I really see an angel? How do I know that was really an angel? I mean, they told me that God wanted me to do something, but 
Maybe that wasn't God. I mean, what, did I really have that? And does the enemy do that? It's amazing that the enemy does that. Sometimes we will have encounters with the Lord and the enemy will come back in and go, well, maybe you were just thinking I ought to have a good feeling from God and it kind of went down there. He tries to destroy everything that connects us to God. He tries to destroy our relationship with Jesus, number one. But everything that connects to God, he tries to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy. So this kind of a thing really makes a mark inside of you. You can't, can't kind of walk away because you've got a rock that's been fire out of the rock. You can't get fire out of a rock. He just sprang up fire out of the rock. You can see everything burned up there and you can come back tomorrow and look at that and go, there it is. So it was, I can see where that would be a really good thing to do and would bolster Gideon's faith. God knew Gideon's faith needed to be bolstered. He knew that and he didn't quit with him there. And so I, I it really knocked Gideon though, because he goes, oh my gosh, I've seen the face of the angel of the Lord. But the angel said, you're not going to die. Don't worry about that. But he gave him a very specific command. He said, I want you to go and take your father's bull and a second bull that's seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has built. I want you to tear it down. And so Gideon looked at that and said, well, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do it in daylight because everybody around here worships Baal. You go tearing down these altars, you're going to be, and it was his father's altar. It was Joash's altar. And he said, you know, I want you to go tear that down and then sacrifice the bulls on a new altar that you make to me. And Gideon did that in the middle of the night. And sure enough, the next day, people rose up and said, what happened to the altar? And somebody had to see him in the middle of the night because they knew it was Gideon and Gideon has done it. And they came up to Joash and said, your son has ripped the altar down and we're going to kill him. And do you know what Joash said? Joash said, it's not between you and my son, it's between Baal and Gideon. If Baal is God, let Baal fight his own battles. Would you expect Joash to defend him after Joash has built the altar? God does amazing things. But that released Gideon, and actually they changed his name, or at least some people changed his name, to Jerobaal, which means contends with Baal because of that one thing that he did. So in this story, what possible relevance is it to stop and tear down an altar before you go and deliver Israel? Well, you know what this is. There are things that are wrong in your life that are still have a position and you have not torn them down and got rid of them. And there's an altar to Baal here and you cannot follow after me and I'm not going to be with you when you have something that you know contradicts me and you are not willing to take action to remove it. What Jesus would say is, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. You cannot sit there and say, I'm with you 95% Lord, but I have this sin in my life, it's just gonna stay there, take it or leave it, it's me. And I'd like to walk with you, but I'm not giving this up. You can't do that. It does not work with the Lord. You either follow the Lord, and He has everything, or you're drastically dropped down in following the Lord. And we all know this. God does this in every one of our hearts. We ask the Holy Spirit to come in and search us. 
And the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And the Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. And God points it up and says, this is sin in your life. And you're playing with it or messing with it or tell, telling me we're going to deal with it later. But this is sin in your life and it is killing you. For the wages of sin is death and he who commits sin is the slave of sin, which we don't believe. We believe we commit sin and we control the sin. Jesus said he who commits sin is the slave of sin. If you don't see that we are the slave of sin, it has nothing to do with it. We're still a slave of sin. And anything we leave in our life that God has shown us is wrong enslaves us. If I walked around with you, let's just say I'm going to kind of, well, I'm going to pick on Teresa one more time. Teresa, if I just kind of walked in from the back door and I had one of those bear traps, you know, you know those bear trap things that are about this big, you know, about, I don't know, 18 inches long and they have claws in them and you hit it in the middle and it goes clunk and then you're not going anywhere and then there's a chain and you're not going anywhere. You imagine I had a bear trap and I'd stepped in it and it had my leg and there was a, a chain with a giant ball behind it and I was walking in dragging that leg with blood coming out of my leg from the bear trap doing me going what a glorious day so good to be in the house of the Lord what would you say to me Teresa you would say Jim your body your leg in particular and a lot of blood on the floor is in bondage to that chain and you must take that off you can't go, next month I'm going to take a serious look at my leg and see if gangrene is set in. If gangrene is not set in, I think I can delay a little longer. And by the way, I'm bearing my cross. Do you see? Do you see all the tricks weaved in that? Teresa would, well, Helen would, Teresa wouldn't, but Helen would slap me upside the face and say words close to, you idiot, how did I possibly marry you? No, she would say things like, you have got to straighten this out. Don't you see you are bleeding? The slavery is hurting and killing you. And you're not moving anything like what you should. And I stop and point out and I say, well, look at this group. Nine out of ten has got a bear trap on their leg hauling a big weight. Does that make it any better? No, it doesn't make it any better. Most people do that with sin. It's exactly like the bear trap. It is inherently deceitful, it says in Hebrews. Do not be tricked from the deceitfulness of sin. And it makes you think you're going to be happy. And it never makes you happy. It always puts you in bondage. And we tolerate it. And the Lord is sitting up there going, how can you permit this in your life? But we have such a great deception that we want it. It's a heavy deception. Then we permit it to be there. So we have this relationship with the Lord where he says, if we're going to walk together and change the things that really need to be changed, this has got to be changed in your life. We have got to take down our altars to Baal. I had one particularly bad altar in my life, Dick, that was, uh, had to do with understanding. And the Lord pointed out to me that if he wanted me to do something, and I really didn't understand the purpose of it, that I was, here's a big word, I was recalcitrant. <laughs> I was resisting. If I didn't understand the purpose of it, then I would resist. And I would say, Lord, if you'll show me the purpose of this, 
and convince me that it's really worth doing, well, then I'll do it. But I'm not just going to do it because you said to do it. And so there are a lot of things in life like that. You read these verses. If someone asks of you, then give. Well, what you mean by that is give in a lot of circumstances, but not, that's not what he said. If someone asks from you, give. Have you ever tried just doing that? If someone asks, give. Doesn't say how much, but give. If they ask of you, give. That's what Jesus said to do. The Lord pointed out to me in my life that was not true. There were a number of people that asked of me, and I didn't give. And he said, well, why is that, Jim? And I said, well, my understanding is, and all of a sudden I went down my understanding path. He said, well, I'll tell you what. How about you're very clear it's me, and so you're going to do it. Now, if you ever raise children, children will tell you how it's really good to play in the street. The street's a better place to play. You don't have all these other problems around. If you're going to kick a ball around, you can put a goal here and a goal here. Cars, well, adults will pay attention and make sure they don't hit us. Kids would get killed in streets if parents didn't pay close attention to what they're doing. And do they run out in streets chasing a ball? Absolutely, because their eyes are on their own world and they don't see the dangers involved. Our eyes are on our own world and we don't see the dangers involved in sin. Sin is horrific. It is not something that's a little undesirable. And the Bible says of Jesus that he had a joy above his brethren because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness or wickedness. And therefore God gave him the joy of gladness above his brethren. If you want joy in your life, if we want joy in our life, I always mix up we and you. Y'all got to apologize here. All these things apply to me a hundred times. If we want joy in our life, God says, love my way and hate wickedness. It'll produce a joy in you that is incredible. And that's how Jesus got that joy. It says in Romans 12, 9, O ye who love the Lord, hate that which is evil. The actual word is abhor that which is evil. We don't abhor evil, we play with evil, and we reap it in our, the death from playing with evil in our bodies and in our lives. So it's extremely important when you're walking with the Lord to tear down those things that are holding you back. Now, Gideon didn't gain any more knowledge, skills, and abilities and talents. He didn't, he didn't grab that. So basically, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm not going quite as fast as I had hoped. <laughs> and so now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So it was harvest time. It was time to come and take everything they've been making. And they all came. Well, how many came? Well, we don't know exactly, but counting up numbers later in the story, it was in excess of 135,000. It might have been many more than that, but it was in excess of 135,000. It might have been 300 to 500,000 by some other estimates. We don't know for sure. And so then the next verse says, and this is the fourth time and so important to see. Verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The fourth time the Lord said, I'm going to be in on it. So he sent his spirit and all of a sudden the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Now I hope you're a different person when the spirit of the Lord clothes you. We're a different person when we invite the Spirit of the Lord to have rulership in, in, in our lives. 
When our temple is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are different. It changes everything. It supersedes, overwhelms, transcends the natural because the Spirit of the Lord is now involved. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm very glad God did that because what Gideon was about to do would be discouraging, discouraging, discouraging before he saw any hope. So, Fran, if I was laying out a plan for you and I was saying, we're going to do something big, it's going to happen in some stages, I would work in some short-term successes to encourage you along the way. The last thing I would do, Fran, is say, here's the first step, and it looks like we're going to go way backwards. Stay with me, though, Fran, and oh, by the way, here's the next step, looks like we're going way backwards again. That is not the way to do things. This is me. This is not God. This is me. But now listen what happened to Gideon. So Gideon, in essence, sent out messengers to everywhere. And he said to everybody, listen, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the men of the east, they're all coming. And we need to stand up and defend. Please come and help me fight the battle. Okay? Please come and help me fight the battle. And I'm going to skip the fleece thing. I think all of y'all know that. So I'm going to skip that. That was just an encouragement that the Lord did along the way to say, I'm still here. You're clothed. All these people are coming. I just want to let you know. And so when they all gathered together and they sent over, there came 32,000 people from Israel, 32,000 men. So at the very best, it was 32,000 versus 135,000 which is whatever, a four to five one ratio against you. No man, no army would go into battle outnumbered four to five to one. And it may be much, much worse than that if there were three to five hundred thousand. Now, you're Gideon, or, and you're sitting there, and you see that when you put everything out, you got 32,000. They have at least 135,000. Your natural mind says we are going to be destroyed. And that's why it's so important that you're clothed with the Holy Spirit, because your natural vision will say, this will not work. And it won't work in the natural. It only works with God, but God is there. And that's the point God is trying to get over to us today. You keep talking and walking like I'm not there. I am here. I am here. Hold my hand. I am here. Don't talk about getting close to me. Be close to me. I am here. And that changes everything at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 1 o'clock. I covet your prayers for what's happening to me in the next six weeks. I've got some things to do. I don't see how I'm going to get them all done. Helen continues to give me advice like you ought to just retire. And so, um, but there's a lot of things going on that I can't see how I'm going to make it through. Now, I will see all of y'all in six weeks. I don't plan on being dead. And I fully plan on God helping me do some things that I just don't see how I'm going to do. And I don't particularly like, I don't mind saying to you that verse which says, when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm not so fond of that verse. I kind of like to feel strong and be strong. Do you know? But God lets you feel weak so that you know he's there. He lets your natural abilities feel. I can't handle it. So he's there. Jane's story is so perfect. I just, I want you to experience frustration and fear and boom, so you can see my peace come in from my direct word. And then I follow it up with action. And now you look back and you tell everybody, why don't you trust God? Well, that's a great testimony. 
And we ought to draw from that testimony to help us trust God. So Gideon had 32,000. Now, when you went to pray to the Lord, if I was praying in Gideon, I would say something like, I think, Lord, we just need to talk a little on the math here. I can, you know, I, I understand we may not be able to get like three times more than they do, but at least I want the same number of men that they have. You know, I can, but I don't really think those men were even in Israel. I don't think they could have gotten the numbers to get that high. I don't know that for a fact. But, but the estimates of numbers are that they probably couldn't even have gotten them. And so he was kind of talking to God. And do you know what God said? God said, if you were to win the battle with 32,000 people, you would think that you did it. Now, I would have fought back with God. I wouldn't think I did it. I think we're down five to one. I would give you all the glory. If you're worried about getting glory, I can make sure you get glory. But don't think, he said, no, you would think that you did it. And they would have, they would have thought that they did it. So take the men down and go to the men and ask them this question. Now listen to this question, because this is the, you know, the first read you're going, that's not such a smart question. And he said, he just came up to the men and said, okay, any of you who are afraid to fight, you can go home. Now, I don't know if this will ring with all the women, but if you get a bunch of men together and they've already said, I'm going to come out and fight, and you turn to them and say, if any of you are afraid, you can go, a lot of men will just hang around because of the social pressure. You're going to say, oh, there's a coward. Watch him go back. So you're thinking, well, you'd lose 3 4%, maybe at a max. And maybe God just wants to do that to get them out. A little leaven may mess something up, so let's do that. But that is not what happened. 22,000 men said they were afraid and turned around and went back. Now, Fran, what would that do to your heart if you were Gideon when you see two-thirds of the company going away? I mean, at first you might want to say, why did you come? We were talking about a real battle, and I want to tell you that Christians come with an idea of what a battle is about, and when they see what the battle is about, two-thirds of them are afraid enough to turn around and go back because it's a real battle. And one of the things that scares a lot of people is that we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And when you're dealing with principalities and powers and darkness, your fleshly natural abilities don't mean anything. And only your connection to God is important. Well, a whole lot of people don't have that connection to God because God's been telling them to change their life. God's been telling them to do this. So they've kept a little distance from God, close enough to get into heaven, mind you, because James, it would be stupid to die and miss heaven. So I'm close enough to God, he can't put me in hell. But this totally given over to him for every one of his purposes? Well, no, not really. Well, if you're not that way, and you're going to do battle with principalities and powers of darkness, you are in serious trouble. And if you experience any of it, you are going to get scared. Now, I want to say this because the natural man thinks the entire problem on earth is natural. And then if you just educated people according to the way that I think, all things would be solved. Wrong, wrong, wrong. There is a battle in the spiritual that is the true battle. And we don't mess with it very much because we'd get wiped out if we did mess with it very much. But Jesus said that he came and overcame the world and the world ruler who was Satan. And that had to be done. He had to bind him and he conquered him. 
So what happens is when Christians get into the real battle, what's really needed to save our country, to save the world, to save my family, to save the distant relations, is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. And two-thirds of people will just go back and go, I didn't recognize that, that it, it was so intense. I thought we could do some kind of regular things and I could hold spears and maybe do a little fighting, but my gosh, this is really intense. And two-thirds of the people go back. If I was Gideon, I would have been terribly disheartened. And I would have prayed to the Lord something like, look, this is really, really rough. We are at 13 to 1 now on this thing. And do you know what God said? If I was writing the book, what I would want God to say, be of good cheer, Gideon. I know the way you're looking, this looks bad. But I've still got you, and you don't see how I'm going to do it, but I am going to rescue you. I have still got things that I'm going to do. That's what I would like God to say. But do you know what God said? You still have too many. If you were to beat the enemy with 10,000, you would say, I did it. You still have too many. Now, if I'm praying, that's got to set you back. Do you see? You've got to walk around going, wait, 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 wait. We're going in the wrong direction. We have a huge battle, and he's saying we've got to keep going this way. What would the enemy do in that case? The enemy will come in and say, you see, following after God is crazy. God asks things of you that are ridiculous. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm the one who knows what's going on. I am grounded in reality. You're going to beat people with swords and spears. You've got to have more swords and spears. That's what works. Do you hear? But God didn't say anything. He didn't say anything like, I've got to justify my strategy. God never comes back and justifies his strategy. He always says, are you with me, Teresa? God is God. We, we keep thinking, ranking things among men's plans. God's God. He stoops down to behold the heavens. He is God. Then when he spoke to me, he said, you'd think you had too many. So come on down to this, come on down to this river. So he brought all the men down to the river and said, you, everybody's free to drink. And there were 9,700 men who got down on their knees, put their eyes on the river, and put their mouth in the river and drank. 9,700 men. There were 300 men who didn't get on their knees, but squatted and scooped up with water into their mouth, but kept their eyes ahead. 300 men squatted, put in their hand to their mouth and kept their eyes ahead. And God said, separate for me 300 and send the 9,700 home. Are you feeling this, Jane? I want you to feel the inside of Gideon because we are Gideon. We are in this moment for our families, for our country, and the world. We are the Gideons. And the Lord is taking out of us everything where we can claim from our flesh that we accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Before him no flesh shall glory. But we often have other plans. And he is taking out everything so that our relationship with him and he will receive the glory. But certain victory, but we certainly don't see how. And in the end, we're not going to understand how very well because it's going to be in a spiritual plane. 
You know, uh, John and I were talking before. It says in Isaiah 55 that the word that the Lord sends out never comes back void, but accomplishes the thing that He intends in the place that He sends it. Because God takes the word and puts a blessing on it and He accomplishes. It doesn't say the speaker accomplishes. It says that He accomplishes. I've shared this once before, but this was a real key to me early in life. My good friend Gary Simmons was teaching a Bible study in New Orleans. And he was talking to me about his frustration. So Miguel, this maybe I hope will be a lifter to you. And he said he had had a Bible study on a particular night and he, he had several things he wanted to say, but he kind of started one way and then it seemed like it bent the other way. And then it seems like it bent a third way. And he felt a little embarrassed at the end hope because he didn't feel like his presentation had been coherent enough. And the enemy is always there being the accuser of the brethren to tell you, oh boy, you're a lousy leader. That didn't even make sense to you. How could it make sense to them? You know, that's the enemy. And anybody that teaches a Sunday school class knows that feeling. You know, you think things are gonna go this way. And I know Miguel, you know, Miguel has very well organized sermons, but I've seen it, you know, where you're going this way and the Holy Spirit starts moving you another way and you, you're trying to balance all that with what you intended to do and what the Lord's telling you to do. We're not perfect, and then right at the end, the enemy's right there to say, you could have been better. If you had spent four hours better planning, you could have been better. If you raise kids, the enemy will be right there, and they'll tell you, all the problems of your kids is because your parenting was subpar. If you had been a better parent, your kids would have grown up in a sterling fashion, never sinned, and be righteous and wonderful before God. And that's the enemy. He'll always do that. Whatever you have done is not good enough. However you have tried to follow the Lord, you should be shamed. And that's the way he is. And what's the Lord? Come unto me, all ye who burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Not condemnation, guilt, backbiting, and, under, and fighting underneath. That's not Jesus. It is the enemy. But it sounds reasonable. You're right, I could have been a better parent. You're right, I spent one hour a year doing something that wasn't self-giving. I should have taken that one hour and done something self-giving. I mean, sometimes you feel like that. Sometimes when you're a parent, you feel so tired, all you can think of is, can I get into the bed without one kid asking me another question of their needs? Sometimes you feel these things, you feel like you're overloaded. And the enemy will always harp on that and go, it's you, it's you, it's you. And the Lord, he always isolates. It's you, it's you, it's you. That's the way that he does. And this is what he would have done to Gideon. You know, you know he'd come to Gideon and go, you're about to be sacrificed, son. You've linked to this God who has no idea how to win a battle. I've been telling you the real things. You need just to go back and get inside your wine press, do a little bit and try to save some food for dinner the next few weeks and you have helped some people out at least. That's the enemy and we get that. The prayer is hard. You feel resistance. And the tendency is just to stop. I've worked on this relationship a long time. It doesn't seem to be moving. And I, I say this to you, Fran, because this is very true in my life. My model with the Lord is a decent amount of effort, and then you see a decent return. And then a decent amount of effort, and then you see a decent another return. And then a decent amount of effort in another. It's a kind of a linear model. 
I put in, the Lord shows me the return. I put in some more and he puts in. I would have been terrible if I was in Joshua's army. Because they marched around for six days and nothing changed. And you know they had to be talking amongst each other. Does Joshua got his golf ball straightened out? He doesn't know what to do here. We're just walking around doing nothing that has any relevance to battle. And he is telling us that we're going to win the victory by doing nothing that has relevance to battle. Do you hear that? But we know the story. So we would say, you idiots, never quit trusting God. It hasn't got anything to do with your perception of where it's going. It has to do with who you're walking with. And that's what we would say to Joshua's army. And Joshua's army would say to us, you need to live what you're talking about. Do you see? Because we do the same thing to God. If we don't see after two months of praying that we can see a measurable difference, we go, well, that's not working. Let's just not do that anymore. I don't like the word patience. I have to really call out to the Lord to say, Lord, I, I know that's an attribute of the Spirit of God. I think I'm weak on that because I don't have a lot of patience. I have a lot of demands but I don't have very much patience to wait and to do something. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. It's patience. If we don't like the Lord's timing, get with the Lord's timing. He knows what's going on. But we have things where we don't see anything and all of a sudden the walls of Jericho fall down and it all comes in. It's because we've been faithful to follow Him when we can't see all the results that He's doing. He uses that constantly. Now He does other things. He does other things. In Haggai, when they were supposed to rebuild the temple, the Lord said, I'll bless you if you rebuild the temple. And they went and put down the foundation. I think Kathy said, uh, Kathy, y'all studying Haggai, I think. Margie's studying Haggai. So they put down the foundation. And the Bible says, as soon as they laid down the foundation, the Lord poured out his blessing. Well, I would not recommend that to God. I would say you can't pay them and give them glory from just laying a foundation. Who knows if they'll finish? You need to wait till the whole thing's finished. God doesn't listen to my plans like that. He knew what they needed was the blessing. He gave them a huge blessing from starting. They just started and he poured the blessing out. So you've got Joshua where you work and work and work and work and work and you don't see anything. You have in Haggai, they take the first step and whoa, the blessing comes. You can't put God in a box. He's going to do it one way, the way he wants and the other, and he knows how to do that. So Gideon could have been very discouraged. I would be very discouraged if I was Gideon. He only had 300 men to work for. But what was that river? That river was blessing. Once you take a step to say, there is real work to be done, there's a real battle to be fought, and I see it now that there's a real battle and I'm not going to quit. I'm going to hang in with the Lord. There comes a blessing. That's the river. There comes a blessing. And many of you have been in a place where the blessing of the Lord fell in a meeting and you go, whoa, we need to come back to this. This is really something. Well, there comes a blessing. 9,700 or 97% of people are so overcome with that blessing that they've been down on their knees and put their eyes on that blessing. In Christians, these are people that come back and say, we need to have great times of worship because there's huge blessing in great times of worship. 
We need to do these things because there's huge blessing, and friend, Lord knows I need some huge blessing right now. And they, they say that uh, in certain places, when revivals are going on, some people would just move from one church to the other just because they were trying to get a blessing. Now, a blessing is a wonderful thing of God, and I am not speaking in any way negatively about blessing. It is great. God gives it, and I would like a ton of it. But the Bible says that Jesus was made unto us every blessing in the heavenly sphere in Ephesians 1.3. And that blessing really is the presence of Jesus. It's not some entity distributed by a vending machine or something that's sent down from heaven in a 60-pound packet to distribute across Skyland Church. It is the presence of Jesus. But some people get their eyes on that blessing and then that's what they want. And it's not just a few people, it's a lot of people. It's 97%-ish of the people who are true fighters, who say, I'm going to be in the fight. And it's a hard one. But there are 300 that God calls on. Did they miss the blessing? No, they didn't miss the blessing. They partook of the blessing, but their eyes were to serve the Lord. Do you see the difference it's a difference on where your eyes were. Lord, this is the blessing. Now we've arrived. When you think of heaven, what do you think about? A lot of people think of the blessing of heaven. I want that blessing, that eternal blessing. That's fine. That's good. That blessing is going to be to know the Father and the Son. That is the blessing. And so the eyes are to be forward saying, Lord, I want to follow you. If we have blessing, I'm glad for that. If it's something beyond that, I'll do that too. That's the rare person. That's the person we're called to be. That's the person that Gideon and the 300 were. Now, most of you know the story, and I'm not going to go through the details of the story because you know the routing, how Gideon's army went and it lit lamps, had jars, broke the jars, routed the enemy. I want, to, want you to catch, though, on what happened later. As the enemy was running, the enemy was heading near Ephraim. Now, Ephraim didn't participate. When there was the call for the 32,000, Ephraim didn't send anybody. And I want you to catch that. Ephraim had been off to the side. Gideon could have had an attitude about Ephraim was, man, am I bitter. When we were in need and we called out to you, you did not help. But these people were going to come near Ephraim and right where Ephraim's armies were. And Gideon sent ahead a message and he told the people of Ephraim, look, the enemy is running. Mobilize yourself and catch them on the run. And Ephraim did. They mobilized themselves and they caught, I can't remember if it was two or three princes, but the big dogs. They caught the big dogs running through and Ephraim caught it. Now, what do you think Ephraim's attitude should have been at that point? In my mind, Ephraim should have said, Gideon, I'm sorry we didn't come. I can see now. You were ordained of God. You were doing the righteous thing, and it was wrong of us not to be involved. Thank you for at, less, let, at least letting us be a part as they ran through and catch some of the people. That's what I think Ephraim should have said. Do you know what Ephraim said? How dare you go and grab all the glory for yourself? Can you believe that, James? 300 men. And they said, how dare you go and grab all the glory? Okay, this is an incredible exchange. Now, you're Gideon. What would you have said back? 
If I was Gideon, I'm not dead sure I can say it from the podium, but it would not have been nice. It would have been something like, what do you mean, how dare I? I begged you to come and help. You could have participated in the glory. You had all this. That is the most unconscionable thing I can imagine someone saying. Those are kind and loving words, you know. I'm being sarcastic. But that was what your flesh would rise up and say. But you know what Gideon said? This is amazing. I haven't done anything. The Lord put the enemy into my hand. Look what you have done. The Lord worked with you to capture the leaders. I haven't even captured a leader. You captured three leaders. And what did the Ephraim people say? Yeah, you're right. We are more important than you. Can you imagine this exchange? And this is true among Christians. What's going to happen is there will be a few that fight a battle linked to God. And they are fighting where the real battle is. And they're fighting a, a battle that God is in the middle of. Then that will pave way for other Christians to come and be able to join in. And what will those other people say? Well, you're kind of an upstart thinking you could run this thing, just like the Ephraimites. And what will the 300, the Christians say? We have done nothing. All we did was walk with God. You've done a big thing. Look what God has wrought in your hand. Because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think of you. The pride of life is so far out the window. Just come along and benefit from what those Christians have done. I'm not saying these are super Christians. The scripture is clear. The greatest amongst you is your servant. Because it really is all the glory to the Lord. He was responsible for Gideon's success. He was responsible for the Ephraimite's success. But then this was the absolute worst. The Ephraimites stopped and said, we're going to rejoice with our catch. And they let the 300 chase the enemy. So he had that whole army of Ephraim. They didn't back them up. They didn't give them any extras. Nothing. Gideon had to go with the 300 and chase. And there was a lot of chasing to be done. And I think you all can see the parallels. But there are going to be a few that are called out that are sold, sold to the Lord, it doesn't matter. The, the other people don't take up their responsibility. It doesn't matter that there's real battle involved beyond their strength. These things don't matter because God is with them and God is real to them. And they're walking with God. And we know what happens when you walk with God. For with men, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible, Jesus said. And so he routed the rest of the enemy. Now, <clears throat> in my writing of the book of Judges, you just got to stop there and say, Gideon, great guy. Doesn't end quite that good. Okay. So the people finally came to their senses and they said, oh my gosh, Gideon has done this. Let's make him king. And so they came to Gideon and said, Gideon, you've done a great thing. You've walked with the Lord. You deserve to be king. And it's good if you haven't read this recently because you won't know what Gideon said. Gideon said, there is no king except our God. I'm not going to be king. There is no king except our God. And he was walking in that. There is no king except our God. And he did not become king. He refused it. But right at the end, there was a mistake. And of all the loot that they had gathered, Gideon gathered people together and said, take all the earrings... There might have been another ornament, too. And put them together in this one place. I have here how many that was. Just a second. Let me double check to make sure I have it right. 
Yeah. He said, put it in this one place and we'll pile it up. And it was 75 pounds of gold. That's pretty serious. 75 pounds of gold. And they took that gold and made an ephod. So an ephod is a priestly garment. It's like an apron. The high priest has one on. It looks like an apron over your stuff. And they made an ephod out of it and they put it in Gideon's home city, which was Ophrah. But unfortunately, the people, let me see what it's the exact wording. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, Ophrah, verse 27, in, verse, in chapter 8. And all Israel whored, W-H-O-R-E-D, after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So what happened in the end was, Gideon was at the place where only God was king, but the enemy is always putting pressure. You need to have something that shows how great you were in this act. There needs to be a commemoration, something we can relate to that really shows what happens here. Make this ephod. God didn't say make the ephod. I don't know if Gideon said it, but it was done. And it became a trap to all the people because they whored after it, which means they gave it reverence. They said it's a special thing. They made an idol out of that thing. The enemy will always be there to do that. Because one way of thinking, Teresa, is, my gosh, once we got the 100, those are really, really good people who follow the Lord. And you got me, I'm Gideon, and Lord knows I'm in this, I'm lock, stock, and barrel. We're really going to do great stuff, and that enemy is trounced. He is just dead, buried, and out of the way. He's not dead, buried, and out of the way. He can be defeated in a lot of ways, but he's going to try to sneak back in any way he can. And this is true in Christian's life all the time. All the way until the end, there will be temptation. You know, Jesus was tempted his whole life. In the Bible, it says that he went into the wilderness and went through the temptations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But later he told his disciples, you have been with me through all of my trials. Well, none of the disciples were with him when he was in the wilderness. He hadn't gotten any disciples yet. And so the disciples were with him through all of his trials. He had trials his whole life. And you just got to read through the Garden of Gethsemane to see they went right up to the end. I mean, I used to not like that part of Jesus where he would say, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Part of me went, wait, wait, you can't do that. If you don't do this, then we're all going to be stuck in sin. I mean, how can you say something like that? Didn't you know from the beginning you were coming to give your life? Didn't you know that you've spent all that time with God? How is it that you could let something like that come out of your mouth? Lord, if it's possible, let me skip this. That sounds like something that would come out of my mouth. That is not something that should be coming out of your mouth. You're the son of God. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. But he was also the son of man. And the Bible said that he was tempted in every way the way that we are. Jesus did not approach a temptation going, this is phase two, the temptations. We'll just tell Satan, forget it. There's nothing to this. He was tempted with every single temptation, tempted him just like they tempt us. So that we have a high priest who is empathetic to our weakness because he walked through our weakness. 
And right there at the end, he asked to get out of the whole thing. Now, I don't like to read that scripture verse. I hesitate sharing it up here because it blows up my image of the Lord and how loving he was. But he was under a heavy trial. It was hard, and he knew. Now, there was physical stuff, no question. And that's not pleasant, and that would be a heavy trial. But Jesus was to be separated from the Father. You see, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? It was inconceivable to Jesus to be separated from the Father because he and the Father were one. And that was the worst trial on the cross, total separation from the Father. Total separation from the Father is hell. Earth is not hell. Separation from the Father is hell. That's the definition. There is none, no God there. God still roams the earth. But in hell, God is not. And the scripture says there's a chasm in between hell and heaven. And if you say, well, I'd rather there not be a hell. Well, I'd rather there not be a hell. But there is a hell. There is a hell. And Jesus said, and separation from God meant that Jesus had to go and take the burden of all sin in a hopeless state. Because separate from God is complete hopelessness. So he had to take the burden of sin and enter into complete hopelessness and pain at the same time. And I don't even know if time enters into it as a dimension. It doesn't say in scripture, but he took the punishment for my sin and your sin, including the complete hopelessness and the complete pain so that I wouldn't have to take it. And he knew that was coming and he withstood it because he loved us. But the enemy will try to get you at the very end, just like he did Jesus, just like he did Gideon. So we just need to know that and be careful of his wiles. So let me just finish up in summary. We are at a Gideon moment. Many generations have been a Gideon moment. I think in World War II there was a Gideon moment. I'm not saying we're the only ones, but boy, I'm certainly aware of the one that we're in. I'm certainly aware. I think in 1973 I thought, we were in a terrible situation. I think that the, the, the charismatic movement was one of the things that God did to, to thwart the work of the enemy. For, for where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And I think the Lord came in and did his thing, and I'm praying that the Lord will do the same thing now. But for our lives, the Lord is saying, I want you to be a part of those 100. I want you to get rid of your temples of Baal. I want you to walk with me when you don't see the path, but you see my hand. And all you see is my hand. And you're walking with me because it's my hand, not because you understand where we're going. Be a part of those 100. And when the battle is hard, you don't just sit there and say, if I don't have some sort of temporary progress in what I'm doing, I'm going to drop out. I want you to follow because it's me and you're holding my hand. And that's what he's calling us to do. Now it says in the Wales revival that there were two women that got together and prayed for years for revival. Two women that got together and prayed. I'm not saying they were the whole cause, but they were, I'm sure, a very major cause. Where it says in James 5:16 that the sincere prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We don't believe that. We believe I'm small on the scale. I'm least in the house of Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my family. What could I do? Those things are inconsequential to God. God started out and he said in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, 
You have hidden these things from the wise and shown them to the children. I thank you that that was your will, Father. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brethren, how not many of you were according to the world anything. Consider that so that the Lord would put to shame that which is and the leaders of this world. That's God's way. So it's very likely he's going to use people that aren't. And he'll use anybody. Don't get me wrong. He used Cyrus. But he's calling people and he's looking for people who will follow him and will walk with him and accomplish incredible things because he's there. Their hearts will be changed where they say, I didn't do anything. Oh, I just walked with the Lord. That's not a lie. That's the way they'll see it. Because as you're close to God, you change to be like Jesus, who doesn't take credit for anything, but says the greatest among you will be your servant. I don't do anything. I just do what I see my father doing. There is none good except the father. Do you see? That heart will be in us. But it's a call out that God is making right now. And it hasn't got to do with numbers. It has to do with individuals. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we feel like our families, our neighborhoods, our country is in a Gideon time. We want to be the faithful, to be the 100. Help change things in our lives, Lord, so that we are those people. We do walk with you. We are with you for your ways to accomplish things that will please you. I ask your special blessing now, Lord, on each one in this room and each one hearing this message, that these things be clear and vibrant inside of us, that you work with each one of us, Lord, to move us to that place. Thank you again for your continued faithfulness. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.